Open your Bibles with me once again to the book of Romans, chapter 8. We will read verses 28 through 30, studying more specifically verse 30. Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 30. If you're visiting with us this morning, you may not know the regular culture of our church that we study through entire books of the Bible, verse by verse, word by word. And so, over the course of more than a year, we've come to Romans chapter 8 and to these few verses. Likewise, also, if you haven't been with us, you may not know that Paul is confronting the Christian life of the young church in Rome. It's a church filled with diversity, a church that knows controversy also. It's a church uh, that at one point, two different cultural groups, the Jewish and the Gentile Christians, fought so much that the Roman magistrate kicked a portion of the church out of the city. They have been divided. And so Paul writes them this letter. Now, some people think on the book of Romans, and they think this is a systematic theology. Paul is intending to put people into a classroom uh, to teach them the precepts of the Christian religion, the formula of doctrine. And while he does that in many parts, that is not what this is. This is a pastor's letter to Christians. It's doctrine for life. The things that establish the Christian as a child of God which ought to encourage the Christian in a life before the face of God. And so as we come again to chapter 8, specifically in these verses, we're going to review the order of our salvation, the things that God has done for us. And so let us read the holy, inerrant, and inspired word of God, Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 30. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called... He also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. More to be desired than gold, even much fine gold. And sweeter also than honey and drippings from the honeycomb is the law of the Lord. Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, As we consider these eternal things, these wonderful truths that pierce through time, that pierce through our hearts, that transform our minds, O Lord, that breathe new life into us, O Lord, help us to be a people amazed at your love for us. Help us to be a people secure in the grace of Jesus Christ. Help us to be a people who would walk after him in this life, knowing that there is a day coming where we will be made perfect in righteousness in Christ Jesus. We pray this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Amen. Why did the Apostle Paul write like this to this ancient church in Rome? Why did he write like this to us? Well, friends, I think it's because the people in that church were real people. They had normal lives. They were just like us. They had hardships. And sometimes they had successes, but more often they had failures Failures that undercut their sense of assurance, that disturbed them and harassed them during the days of their lives and also during their walk as a Christian. And friends, I want to say that I believe that Paul writes because just like any bride, Christ's bride, the church, needs regular words of the affirmation of the love of Christ to us. We need to hear that he loves us. We need to hear it in the morning. We need to hear it in the noontime, in the evenings, and at midnight. And every point in between. As if a divine voice speaks so loudly to every heart of his people. I love you and I will never stop doing it. The theologian Gerhardus Voss thought on this and he asked the question, how do you know that God will never stop loving you? His answer, the great assurance that God will never stop loving you is that he never began. He has always loved you, believer in Jesus, and he will love you forevermore. The last time we took up the verse of scripture before us, we were in Verses 28 and 29, we considered the foreknowledge and the love of God from all eternity for his people. And that because of his heart of love, he decided beforehand that we would be redeemed. That he would change us and conform us into the likeness of his son. As the text of scripture says, that Christ would be the firstborn among many brothers. We studied that a month ago. It's been quite too long ago, but we're not going to go back and tread the ground again and have the larger exegetical expository argument regarding what foreknowledge means. Simply no. We believe it means the love of God that existed beforehand or predestination that God decided things before they came to pass. But rather, this morning, we're going to go and to consider the remainder of this section, having already seen the first two links of the golden chain of the love of God to us in salvation, we'll see the latter three. They're all going to be in verse 30. That's where we're going to be for our study this morning. The first of them is this, the power of corruption broken, effectual calling. That's the first point. The power of corruption broken, effectual calling. The second point, the guilt of sin removed, justification. The the guilt of sin removed, justification. And then the third point, still in verse 30, the design of love accomplished, glorification. Glorification. The power of 
of corruption broken, the guilt of sin removed, the design of love accomplished. If that sounds really beautiful and poetic, let me give credit to where it's due. That's Matthew Henry in his commentary on this book of the Bible. So listen to the sermon, but maybe go read that also afterwards. And so I just want to say that as we've come to this verse of Scripture, we have these four portions that are mentioned. Maybe we could say five in total, verses 28 through 30. But here in verse 30, the the latter four of these aspects of the order of our salvation, they are in order and condensed. You may say, well, you know, pastor, I've heard calling, justification, and glorification, but I was raised in the church and I've studied theology on my own. I've come to know that there's more to this, pastor. I mean, there's the decree of God in eternity. There's the foreknowledge and the predestining and the calling. And then there's this thing, regeneration. Where's that in here? I didn't hear about that. I didn't hear about faith and repentance. I heard about justification. Praise God. Amen. But then there's no sanctification mentioned. We just go straight past that and adoption all the way to glorification. Pastor, this thing isn't full. Again, I would say to you, friend, the Apostle Paul is condensing these things. I would likewise also encourage you to understand that he presumes each of the things that I just said, if you understand what I'm saying, in these three subsequent points. They're included there. They're under the overall heading, if you will. And so you're going to hear me speak about effectual calling and regeneration and these things exchangeably. Likewise, sanctification and glorification, faith and repentance, all bound up together within this very short order of salvation. And so we come to the first point of verse 30, the power of corruption broken, that all those whom he predestined, he also called. Whenever I was a child, a small child, if you wanted to contact somebody, you didn't have the benefit of a cell phone. No smartphones. It's a long time ago. Phones were connected to cords mounted on walls with screws. Children, I know it sounds bizarre, but it was a day where there were giants in the land. And for most of my childhood, there wasn't even an internet in the home. Now, some of you also would say, well, come on, Pastor, you're not quite that old. The internet's much older than that. Uh, However, we didn't have one for a computer that accessed the internet for a lot of time. And so if you wanted to call somebody, you needed this old thing. Uh, this phone book that was usually much larger than even a hymnal. I don't even have a phone book. I look through the home and we don't have one because it's such an outdated artifact of history. But if you wanted to call somebody, you needed a phone book and the phone book was thick and the pages were thin. And the thing that you had to know, first off, to be able to find their information was at least sort of where they were located. Where were they? Were they in your home state? Were they even in your country? Where were they if they were in your state or another state? What was the name of the town? You needed to know where they were, okay? And so you might go through and locate the phone book for Mississippi and you've got it in your hands and you think, wow, it's not that impressive. It's kind of thin. You turn, maybe they're in Jackson and you look down name by name by name to find where they are and there's their address, there's their phone number. Kind of a scary thought today. Anybody could find out where you're living. Well, that's the wild world of which we, most of us grew up in anyway. 
And in much the same way, if you're going to understand calling, effectual calling, the calling of God, you need to first understand where people are. That's just a simple fact. It's helpful to understand from which the Lord would call his children. And so I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. Another of the letters of the Apostle Paul to the church at Ephesus. He's going to show us where we all once lived. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Listen closely. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind." That's a pretty staggering piece of scripture, I think. And if you paid attention, uh, you might even say that those people we just read about, those people, they're a little bit frightening, really. They're dead. They're sinners. Living lives with trespasses. They're following this false spirit, the spirit of the power of the air. This sounds terrifying. Those are people that ultimately, if we're honest, we would say we want very little to do with. Somebody called a child of wrath. But friends, those people are us. Paul's writing to the church. That's a letter to Christians. That's the place that every single child of God dwells before they know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. That's the reality. As the hymn writer put it, We all once lived under the power of reigning sin. Just think on that for a second. That sin, like a king, directed our hearts, our minds, and our actions in every way and with absolute authority over us. The things we would like, the things we would do, the things we would say the character of how we would live. But that is who we were when God, who loved us from all eternity, and God who predestined us to become like Jesus, called us. We weren't in the courts of his house. We weren't before his throne. We weren't on our knees in praise and in worship. We were standing as members of an army organized against the crown of the Lord Jesus Christ. We were rebellious. We were an army of darkness. A people not sensitive to him and having no desire for him. And that's who he called. The voice of the Lord called deaf ears to hear him. He called and dumb minds came to know him. 
He called and dead hearts began to beat. And you say, this is so hard for me to understand. It's so hard for me to understand. How can this be? How could someone who wants nothing to do with God, who not only is his enemy, but has a heart that's dead in hatred against him, how can it be that he would do this? How could he change me? It is because through the Holy Spirit, the Lord speaks sweetly to lost souls. The first aspect I think we can say of the calling of the Holy Spirit has very much to do with the testimony of the law of God against us. And you say, well, that doesn't sound very sweet at all. It sounds hard, Pastor, because it sounds like you're saying that the Holy Spirit speaks and in the calling he shows me my sin and guiltiness. Yeah, friend, he does that. That's exactly right. But he doesn't do it as your enemy. He does it as your creator who has a heart of love for you. If I can back away from this and put it into some context, it's like a really, really good father. Okay? Like a father who has sons and daughters, sons and daughters that make terrible mistakes. And he loves them. And he's loved them from the second he held them in his hands on the day of their birth. And he loves them, but he knows them really well. He knows that they fall, that they scrape their knees, that they say things they shouldn't say, that they go and they do things that they shouldn't do. And whenever that father sees that child in the midst of all of the mess that they've made, and he sees that they're trapped under it, enslaved to it, and they don't even know it, and they don't know a way out, what does the father do but say, son, daughter, there are chains on your ankles. There are chains around your wrists. Your back is bleeding. Your hands are pouring out blood. Look at where you've come to. Showing them the desperate state of their soul. That's not all the Holy Spirit says. That's not all that God is pleased to speak in the calling of his children. But also he calls and he tells us not only of the circumstances we are in, the desperate state of our sin, but he tells us of Jesus. He tells us of the Christ, the Redeemer and the sacrifice for sinners. He's not only a father saying, look at your problem, but he says, here's the solution. Look at your slavery, but here's your deliverer. That's what he says. Because he loves you, he loves you. And he always has loved you, and he never began to love you. And he did not stop in the midst of the calling that he laid upon your life. But there's even more. He calls us by name and he says to us, go to him. Come to his cross. Be covered with his blood and cry out in joy that the grave couldn't hold him. It's not only look at your slavery, look at your savior, but come into my presence and be free. It's a calling that's absolute and it's sweet and it's loving. 
It's like a heart that overflows with love and compassion, not only with a desire to help, but the power to bring it about. Do you ever pay attention to tenses of verbs in the Bible? I encourage you to do it. Any good Bible reader will notice as they read through the tenses of verbs. And in verse 30, those whom he predestined, there in the English in a past tense, he also called, there again in the English in past tense. You may also know that the Greek has no formal past tense. It has an aorist form. If you'll allow me to just be a little technical for a second. It means something that happened, that's been finished, as a simple occasion. And the whole of the context of Greek shows us it's a past tense, okay? As simple as that. And so whenever Paul is saying this, he's saying the Lord has called. That presently as a people of God, as redeemed Christians, you have been called. This is something God has done. I just want to say something that might sound just wildly obvious to you. You didn't call yourself. He called you. Calling is not something we do. It's not something we come to. It's not the rational happening of the mind as you read the revelation of Scripture or you derive the existence of God from all creation. No, 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 no. It is a specific work of God. Something that He does. And whenever the Lord calls you child of God and when He has called you, He breaks the power of sin's corruption in your mind and your heart so that sin no longer owns you, nor does it define you, but you come to belong to Jesus Christ who loves you and gives you life. Effectual calling. The Lord breaking the power of reigning sin. This single aspect of our salvation in Jesus Christ. As you continue in verse 30, we come to the guilt of sin removed. Justification, that's a very brief way to say it. Those whom he foreknew, he predestined. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. To know sin is one thing, and it's necessary for the salvation of any person to know they are a sinner in need of a Savior. And then to know who that Savior is, that it is Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, the Lamb that was sacrificed in your place as a sacrifice for sin. That's another thing, absolutely necessary. And then to have your eyes opened, your hearts melted. Those are all wonderful parts of your salvation. They're wonderful. They're necessary. They're central. They are essential. But that's not the only thing that is in our salvation, is it? It's not. There's more. Gloriously more. Because there's more than a problem of just having deaf ears and a dumb mind and a hard heart. There's the problem of justice. That sin is an offense. That sin deserves punishment. 
and that sin does bring guilt on us for our past, present, and even future actions against God. It's great to know, it's great to see, it's great to profess, but if your house is still painted red, it needs to be washed white. And that's what we're talking about in justification. This thing that God has done for his people. Because you and I who have offended him, even from the second of our birth and before that, being conceived in sin within our mothers, you and I desperately need the guilt of our sin to be dealt with. We need to be free from what God's justice requires You need to understand that when we sin, it deserves punishment. And if God is just, he will punish sin. To do less means that he would not be just. And so what is justification? Let me give you an illustration. Justification is kind of like an archer aiming an arrow at us and striking Jesus. The punishment we deserve being carried out on him. Not only is it that, that our punishment lands on him, but it is also like a father, the father in heaven, setting his heart on Christ in love and embracing us in his place. Do you understand? It's two parts. He takes our guilt. We take his reward. He takes the punishment. We take all of the love of God due to him. He becomes cursed. He becomes outcast. He gets crushed. We are embraced and seated at the table of a father. It's an exchange and it's so glorious. And what Paul says is that those who are called are also justified That as our sins are punished in the flesh of Jesus on the cross, that we are declared not guilty. More than that, we are considered righteous because of Christ's obedience. The Apostle Paul writes to the church in Corinth in 2 Corinthians 5.21. He says, for our sake, he made him to be sin." Who knew no sin. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Do you see the two things? He becomes sin. We become the righteousness of God. We're reconciled with a just God. A God who if we stood before him. Covered in the guilt of our sin. We would rightly deserve wrath. But because of the death of Jesus. We deserve his love. And we receive it freely. And so what is Paul saying to you, Christian? He's saying God justified you. He made right all your wrongs, all your past, your present, and your future sins. They no longer haunt you. You have no reason to fear the wrath of God because Jesus endured all of it for you. You are safe in his arms. The love of Christ is wrapped around you. You have been made righteous before the throne of God. 
And that will never change. For the Christian, it has happened. That past tense of the Greek aorist. It has happened. You have been justified, church. You no longer need to hide from a wrathful God. You can sit at his table as his child. And then in the third place in the passage of scripture, as we go straight ahead from justification, we come to the design of God's love accomplished glorification. You see, at the beginning of life, we know that the Lord calls us. We know that we've believed on Christ and that he justified me. But I think if we're like the church in Rome, Paul knows that we're likely to say something like this. But, but what about now? I know about all those things that, that are the truth of the beginning of my salvation. Those things that, that are the foundation. But I was a child. I was a young adult. That was years ago. What about now? What about what about all these struggles and the things that I, I haven't had great victory over? What about those things that are not even in the rearview mirror? They're right now. They're right here. I still struggle with them, Pastor. I know you've said, I've been justified, past, present, future. I, it's wonderful, but I'm still struggling. Paul says, those whom he justified, he also glorified the tense is the same it's still past tense and you may say if you're a discerning reader but pastor I know the doctrine of glory it's the day of glory the coming of Christ where we will be made perfect in righteousness where not only will I be free from the guilt of sin but I'll be free from the effects of sin in all of its punishments in all of its pain in all of its Torment. I won't experience death. I won't experience temptation to sin. Nor will I experience sin. I'm going to be free from all of those things. And my body will be too. That's not today, is it, Pastor? I'm not perfect yet. Lord knows I'm not perfect. Look at the things I've done. I despised the Ubon who cut me off as I tried to get to church. I hated my neighbor this morning. I cursed at my child or my spouse. I laid down in a sin that I only committed a few moments before and I felt horrible knowing I would go to church the next day. What about those things? How do I deal with that? That's not glorious. It's not glorified. They're not past tense. How can he do this? How can he say this sort of thing? You have been glorified. I want to introduce you to an idea. I want to give you a word, a word that I just recently learned too. So follow along with me. We believe that when Paul uses the word glorified... In this tense, with the past tense force, if you understand, that he is using this in a proleptic way. Proleptic. You say, what in the world does that mean, pastor? I think I can make it simple. It is something so sure to come that we can speak as if we currently enjoy all of its effects. I'll say it again. Something that we are so sure will come that we can speak as if we currently enjoy all of its effects. 
You see, the Apostle Paul is absolutely convinced, Christian, that the Lord, if he justified you, he is going to sanctify you. He's going to make you holy. He's going to give you a heart that beats and loves like Jesus does. A mind that thinks as his does. He's going to change us as a people within ourselves. Paul is sure of this. And it's a thing that is going to progressively happen in your life over the course of the whole of it. Paul is sure of it. He takes it as if it's already a reality so that he could even say it past tense. As if he would say, you have been sanctified. Likewise, Paul is so sure that you will be glorified, that there is a day coming, that your sinful flesh, your taste that loves sinful things, your heart that delights over things that are so different and against who God is, those things are going to be so radically changed and they're going to be so a thing of the past that Paul can say, you have been glorified. Paul writes to the church in Philippi in chapter 1, verse 6 of Philippians. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. That's how he can say this. That's how he can say this. That you will be his entirely. That God loves you so much that the one who never began to love you but always loved you, that he is and he will bring you all the way home. That the things that you struggle with right now, they will not define you. They cannot have control over you. But there's a coming day. There is a coming day and it is so sure to come. Even as you struggle with these sins, you can take and grip your fist and say to it simply this, I know that you will not always be part of my life. You got me this time, but the king is coming and he's going to destroy you and put death to death. And I'm going to live forever. And you say, Pastor, bring that to my heart. I'll do it in this way. Christian, you are secure in the love of God. You are so secure in the love of God that he is pleased to call you his child. And if you are a child of God, you will be that forever. Let us pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. For how you love us so dearly. And we pray, O oh Lord, that you would give us strength to stand, O oh Lord, when we have no strength. O oh Lord, that you would give us joy when we have only eyes filled with tears and weeping. O oh Lord, that you would cause us to have heavenly delight even in the midst of suffering and persecution, because we will know that there will be a day of eternal delight. We pray all this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.